Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 1st of February. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by the CEC's science and technology writer, Jeremy Beck. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, what is the government hiding about the state of the banks? And hot days are no excuse for 15,700% jumps in electricity prices. Are Australians being Enroned? Before we begin, Jeremy, I just want to mention a few things for the benefit of the viewers. Um, regular viewers would be familiar with John Adams and Martin North, who have, uh, they, they do videos on a show called Digital Finance Analytics, which Martin has been running for a long time. And they've been warning people about things like the housing market, the impending crash of the Australian economy. John Adams has coined the term economic Armageddon and things to do with debt, etc. So we've cited some of their material quite a bit. They have just launched a new channel, which I want to recommend to viewers to watch and subscribe to. It's called In the Interests of the People, which is a very good um, uh, name for a channel. The, there's two episodes up there now that people that are worth watching. One is, the first was on how you can't expect politicians to tell you the truth about the economy which they cite the case of Joe Hockey that we first exposed in 2013, where he deliberately lied to a constituent that he said there wasn't a crash coming when he was selling assets knowing there was one. His wife had dipped him off. So that's worth watching, and the conclusions John draws from that. And the second one is on the human toll of the housing bubble that, we've, that is already here. And it's about the suburb of Camden near, near Sydney, where there's been a spike in domestic violence that the police are attributing to mortgage stress. And it's a very insightful um, story that people need to know. So it's definitely worth, I just really, really, really want to encourage people to go to, those, go to that YouTube channel and watch it um, and, and uh, subscribe to it because they put up good material. Secondly, before we start, remember everything we cover in the CEC report is um, from the Australian Alert Service where you can see the elaborated articles because we can't do justice to it in the short time we have for this show. So if you see anything you want to know more about, call in on our toll-free number. 1-800-636-432 for a, for a free copy if you're a first-time caller. And finally, um, for, th for this show, please, if, you watch this, if you're watching on YouTube, like the show and subscribe. If you're not already a subscriber to, the YouTube, to our YouTube channel, subscribe to that as well because that's the way you can be notified quickly of the updates we have in our, um, uh, in our shows and when we put on extra material or just when the, the weekly show is ready to be viewed. All right, so I really encourage people to do that. And if you're a, a viewer on Channel 31, go to YouTube and you like the show and, you, and, and you, sometimes if you're a Melbourne viewer, it's, a, it's on an awkward time at night, you know, go to the YouTube show and become a subscriber and that's the way you can get ready, more ready access to the program. So that said, let's get into it. What is the government hiding about the state of the banks? So, Jeremy, today is the 1st of February. As we speak some, somewhere behind closed doors, uh, Justice Kenneth Hayne, the, the Commissioner of the Royal Commission, the Financial Services Royal Commission, is handing his report to the Governor-General and effectively the government. But, so this was always expected, and so far the process has been very transparent, but just in anticipation of this report being handed to them, the government announced, um, sorry, you're not going to see it today, you'll see it 10 past 4 on Monday. 
And right. why 10 past four and not 10 to four? Well, because <laughs> what happens at four o'clock? Because they're worried that if it's 10 to four, that 10 minutes may be enough to cause a market meltdown. All right, this is actually quite extraordinary and it's a revealing of how the government's thinking about this, mm. right? They know that big things are afoot. Now, I don't know if they already know what's in the report. I wouldn't be surprised if somehow they found a way to, mm. to, to have some access to it. They're not supposed to, but they're certainly acting like there's, there's big things afoot. And I can assure you, we, we want to go through some of the, the factors here just briefly, because um, they would like to manage this process from here on in. And I can tell you, the government has zero credibility on this question of banking, and you cannot trust them. And so what I'm, what, what I'm about to go through, have in the back of your mind that it's still going to be up to us, the public, which, which forced this process on the government and the banks in the first place. If there's going to be any change as a result of it, nothing Kenneth Hayne can do anymore. It's got to come from us, the public, all right? Mm -hmm. So what are they going to do with the report behind closed doors for three days? What are they hiding? Well, here's some hints. If you've been following the news, the government and the media have set the scene for the release of the report by coming up with this mantra that the Hain Royal Commission has caused a fall in bank lending, which has hurt the economy because it's the reason property prices are falling, Right. And so if you're some, one of the 400,000 people in, in mortgage stress, uh, in um, negative equity in, in Australia, they want you to blame, oh, see what happens when you have an inquiry? And it reminds me of the Simpsons episode with the, um, the asteroid coming from outer space. And when they finally survive it, uh, survive the asteroid, Mo says, let's go to the observatory and burn this down so it can't happen again, <laughs> right? That's, they want, that's how they want the public to think here. See what happens when you mess around with these, with these things that should be kept behind closed doors, you lose the value in your house. Well, sorry, you were going to lose the value in your house anyway because mm. this was a bubble. But they want people to blame the Royal Commission for that. And so they've set the scene in, in those terms. A couple of points to make about this narrative they're running. One is, when it comes to small business, banks weren't lending to them anyway. And you'll put out the graphic we've used many times on the board for that. In 1999, the proportion of lending to small business from... Um, between small business and, and, and mortgages switched over. So now that mortgages dominate bank lending and small businesses, right? Small business has been just denied credit for too long, right? So don't, the bankers are coming out and saying, look, if, if this report's too tough, small business will suffer. <laughs> they were suffering anyway. Don't give us these crocodile tears now. That's, that's one point. Two, very important. The, length, the reason the prices got to what they were was based entirely on fraud. There was nothing but fraud. And the latest from that is very interesting. Douglas Orr of Endeavour Equity Strategy has just revised his, so he's a well-known market commentator and, 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 and um, investor. He's just revised his forecast of house price falls from 20% to 30%. So he's the first guy to forecast a 30% fall, right? So, and and assure, I can assure you it's going to go there. Mm. Um, and that's on the basis, he said, of new revelations that almost all mortgages issued between 2012 and 2016 were based on this scam called the household expenditure measure as a benchmark rather than the actual expenses of the borrowers. And what that allowed them to do, for a median household on an income of 144000 that HEM benchmark underestimated their expenses by $48,000. They're assuming they're living in poverty, essentially. How can you just mm. magically disappear $48,000 of expenses and think, think mm. that that can go to paying off your yeah. mortgage? What a joke. Yeah. If, you were, if you were slightly better off than that and you, your household income was 180000 
that allowed you to understate the income by $80,000, right? Mm. And of course, by understating the income, you can lend hundreds of thousands more. And there was that extra buffer in lending of hundreds mm. of thousands that is what drove up property prices. You right? wouldn't be able to survive on bread and dripping even, well, that of course. sort of assumption. Yeah. If you, you just, you, just yeah. you know, if you're, so 144000 that's a well-off, mm. fairly well-off household, mm. right? But mm. that's committed expenses. Mm. You know, you've got, you've got all sorts of expenses that, you, that you're doing. You just can't change those expenses and pretend 48000 don't exist anymore. So this was deliberate conscious fraud, and that's why people like him are starting to say, look, if that's what happened, if that's what was almost, all the lending in those four years was based on, then the falls we've seen, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, most interesting though, of all the commentary I've seen, um, the media and the government have been saying, look, the banks have stopped lending, that's why prices are going down. Well, the figures don't actually show that, and I've, I've now got two bankers, one before Christmas, the ANZ chairman said, we haven't stopped lending, and now the, the boss of Westpac, Brian Hartzer, said in the AFR this week, we haven't stopped lending either, people have stopped borrowing. This is his quote. As to the perception that the Royal Commission has made banks scared to lend, for Westpac, this is simply not the case. The recent decline in credit growth was due entirely to a reduction in new applications. Average approved loan sizes actually increased slightly, while our approval rates remain unchanged. And like I said, the chairman of ANZ said similar in December. If this is true, right, and I have to say that because their bank is saying it, so you can't take it at face value, but if it's true, what it reflects is that you've had a collapse in speculation by investors because they, they rushed, they speculated like mad in this market entirely on the premise that prices would keep coming, going up. And when prices start going down, it changes their calculations entirely and they're rushing out and they're not, new ones aren't coming in, right? That's the difference. That is not the fault of the Royal Commission. This is the bubble bursting, in other words, right? So here's what I'm telling you is, is the government needs their three days for. They're, they're going to... They want time to work out how they're going to spin this report because they know this was forced on them by the public. They cannot be seen to be dismissing it, but they don't serve the public. They, by their track record, they serve the banks. They also know this property bubble is so fragile. They're desperately looking for a way to prop it up. But the normal tricks they would pull are now um, not available to them or less available to them thanks to the Royal Commission. Right? And they've got to find a way to make it look like they're taking the report seriously while they work out behind the scenes how to dismiss its findings and come up with language that, we, that they can assure, the, that they, they, can, they can fool the public in doing so. Right? They'll have wordsmiths on this already. But then I want to make this point. Forget what they're thinking they can do. The damage has already been done. We the people, the, the Australian public, forced this Royal Commission on them. The CEC played a key role in this. And whatever they think they might achieve, whatever the Royal Commission's final report says, it's already exposed the truth that they lied that our banks were good and everyone can see what crooks they were. And this truth, by the way, applies to banks all around the world. So that's known. You cannot change that. You can't, you can't you know, go back to the old propaganda about the banks, right? Now, it's not up to Hain anymore, whatever he recommends. Hope, you know, if he recommends Glass-Steagall break up the banks, that'd be great. He's been under so much pressure, you know, I'd be really surprised if he does. Forget thinking Hain is the high watermark of what gets done here. We are responsible for, we're responsible for bringing about this Royal Commission. We, Australian people, the citizens are responsible for making sure from here on in the system's cleaned out. And so the CEC, remember, 
Get involved in what we're doing. We've put out a call to audit the banks and we've, we've, we've finished finalising drafting legislation for that. And the legislation is very specific. That's going to freak them out. That's also going to expo- take the investigation further beyond the banks into the, into the regulators, the big four auditors, etc. that have been their accomplices, right? That's very important. We've got legislation to break the banks up. We don't need Hain to approve of that legislation or not, mm. right? We've got the legislation to do that. And that's a political question about whether how much the people, we Australians, demand it, right? And we will keep that pressure on to do that. And, of course, we've got our five-point program involving things like um, a national bank. And if you're scared about a, about a property bubble fall, I understand that. But that's why we have policies such as a moratorium on home foreclosures that can, that can give um, the ability for the government to step in and force the banks to write down what you owe because you shouldn't be owing that much money in the first place. They deliberately created this bubble. Borrowers may have made some silly mistakes by not listening to the organisations like the CEC, but they are going to be. You cannot be. Um, uh, we, we can't make allow a huge section of the population to be thrown into poverty and misery because of their deliberate mistakes, right? Or, and, and crimes, in fact. So we can make sure that that what what happens with the collapse of the property bubble, which will make housing affordable for people where it should have always been, is not. At, great, at the great expense of the public, right? So we can have solutions here. Don't give up on them, get behind them and keep fighting for them. All right, so that said, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get on to what happened in electricity prices last week. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Hot days are no excuse for a 15,700% jump in electricity prices. Are Australians being enron So, Jeremy, for two days last week here in Victoria, the 24th and 25th of January, mm-hmm. electricity prices hit the maximum mm-hmm. in that the market allows, which is $14,500 a megawatt hour. That's the maximum. Now, given the average price is $92. And that's way too expensive. Which is still exactly way too expensive. It should be half of that. That's a 15,700% jump in two days. And we, we'll put up a chart on the, um, uh, on the screen to show that. So, Jeremy, how much did this cost Victoria and South Australia? And who pays for that? Well, just for that one day of electricity, Victoria paid $709 million. Uh, South Australia paid $235 million. So that's nearly $1 billion for one day's electricity. Now, we will pay for it. Now, you'll see that feed into your bill because that's the wholesale price. And the wholesale price feeds into the retail price over the long term. So in terms of per capita costs, you're looking at around $100 per person or more, more than $100. In the case of South Australia, it's $135 because they have that renewables uh, galore that makes it even more expensive. So we're looking at a lot of families will be ending up spending, paying $500 or more for one day's electricity. All right, this is, this is bonkers. So you wrote an article for the alert service this week called Electricity Fiasco, We Warned You. Mm-hmm. What did we warn? We warned that if we shut down Hazelwood Power Station, which supplies one quarter of of the power for Victoria, we will have blackouts and brownouts, we'll have job losses, we'll have a chaotic energy system, which is what we're seeing now. Because there's no way you can run an economy and, and a power grid with just you know, so-called renewables. You know, 
wind, solar, they don't work all the time. It, so when Daniel Andrews allowed this to happen, because mm. they claim it was a private energy company, well, it was, but it's, it's a private energy owned by the French government. Mm. So when Daniel Andrews allowed the French government to shut down Australia's biggest power station, mm. he said, oh, we've got adequate power to make up, but, but we were, he was replacing um, uh, baseload mm. power with Hazelwood mm. with, with renewables. Mm. So he said that would make up the difference. How did the renewables perform mm. on the day? Well, not hardly at all. Renewables in, in uh, South Australia just provided a few percent of the, the whole state's electricity. Uh, in Victoria, they have a thing called a capacity factor, which means that if it's 100 percent, it's running at full pelt. Uh, and in Victoria, uh, our wind turbines went down to around about 20 percent of their normal capacity, which was next to nothing. In whole areas right across Victoria and South Australia, uh, there was no wind at all, and the wind turbines are just sitting there doing nothing. Uh, so you can't run an economy on an assumption that the wind's going to blow. Yeah, I... uh, and, and we said that on, on the, the 2nd of November 2016, we said even blind Freddie knows that closing down a quarter of Victoria's baseload power generation will result in job losses, rising electricity bills, and likely brownouts and blackouts during peak demand. The only way to avoid such a disaster is to keep Hazelwood open until at least the equivalent baseload power generation is online. If the Andrews State Government fails to do this and full-heartedly relies on intermittent renewables instead, it will be complicit in an impending economic catastrophe. The green excuse, Jeremy, is that, oh, we have to expect this, it's climate change, etc. But how unusual are these days, really? And mm -hmm. secondly... Mm. Anything over 30 degrees, you're still going to want to run your mm, mm. air conditioner. Mm. Well, in, in uh, Adelaide, they did have a, a record temperature, an all-time record. Uh, in Victoria, we did not have a particularly high record. Uh, we've exceeded that record by several degrees. We had it, it was just a bit over 42 degrees, which is very hot, admittedly, but that happens quite regularly. That kind of an event is something like a one- and three-year event. Yeah. So it's not something that uh, you'd really expect to you know, black out the whole of the city or 200,000 at least homes, which is what happened. Uh, that is just not on any half-decent competent plan and would know that you'd factor in those 42-degree days. Yeah, okay. Let's take a break. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing hot days and no excuse for 15,700% jumps in electricity prices. Are Australians being enron And Jeremy, another factor on the day is the behaviour of the private generators of the electricity, which mm -hmm. is really what we want to talk about. How did their behaviour contribute to the need for load shedding and the mm. price? Both uh, Energy Australia and AGL both happened to find tube leaks so uh, two generators were shut down. Uh, Energy Australia also had a, a plant, uh, or actually one generator, closed for maintenance. Now, you'd expect, you'd hope that they would have you know, planned that maintenance earlier rather than on the hottest day of the year. It, it's really quite well, suspicious. Well, they are given advance notice of the mm. hottest day of the year mm. is coming, right? They'll know at least a week in advance. Mm. Plus, also, shouldn't they have known summer was coming? Yeah, that's right. Well, why not plan maintenance in you know, September, October? Exactly. Well, we're raising this issue because there's a precedent for, for this kind of behaviour. Now, we can't prove anything, but 
learn the lessons of other places. In California in the year 2000, the private energy company Enron wreaked havoc by deliberately reducing the available power during heat waves to drive up the price to the maximum, which for them, Jeremy, was $1,000. Mm. Our maximum is $14,500. Just watch this clip from the, the documentary Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. After the bankruptcy, a confidential memo surfaced revealing the names of Belden's strategies to game the California market. Wheel out, get shorty, fat boy. Recently, audio tapes of the Enron traders were discovered. What do you want to call this project? Uh, I have a catchy name for that. <laughs> How about, you know, something friendly like Death Star? <laughs> the tapes revealed Enron's contempt for any values except one, making money. Hey, John, it's Tim. The regulatory's all in a big about is we're wheeling power out of California. He just steals money from California to the tune of a million bucks or two. Okay, he arbitrages the California market to the tune of a million bucks or two a day. <laughs> um, an arbitrage opportunity has been defined to me as any opportunity to make abnormal profit. So an abnormal profit would be um, returns above and beyond the norm. I was told that a good trader is a creative trader and a creative trader is a trader that can find arbitrage opportunities. One of those opportunities was called ricochet. I'll see you guys, I'm taking mine to the desert. In the midst of the energy shortages, Enron traders started to export power out of the state. When prices soared, they brought it back in. So we fucking export like a motherfucker. You're getting rich. Trying to. Traders would stay after a 12-hour shift and pour over maps of the Western energy grid. What are the permutations and combinations of ways to move power around the West? And I think that that's something that Enron knew better than any other energy marketer in the country, period. We know all of the California imports. We know all of the California load. We're getting pretty spoiled on with this money. You said you were getting a little scared or making a little too much, and I, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> These are two traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S. This is what they say. What we did was overbook the transmission line we had the rights on and said to California Utilities, if you want to use the line, pay us. By the time they agreed to meet our price, rolling blackouts had already hit California, and the price for electricity went through the roof. Did you have any knowledge that this was happening? The only, the only thing that I'm aware of, Senator, is there was a, uh, there was a difference of opinion on the rules of the independent system operator. It was just set up. The rules okay. weren't quite, quite clear. We have traders here from Enron who were saying they did something wrong, but you don't see anything wrong. I have one last question, and then I am done. Traders soon discovered that by shutting down power plants, they could create artificial shortages that would push prices even higher. Hey, uh, this is David up at Enron. Uh-huh. There's not much uh, demand for power at all, and we're, if we shut it down, could you bring it back up in three or four hours? Oh, yeah. Well, why don't you just go ahead and shut her down, then, if that's okay? Okay. When you see two or three energy companies with 30, 35% of their entire capacity down for maintenance on a single day. And as a result, the price of electricity skyrocketing three or 400%, and then a week later, someone else does it up in Northern California. 
you begin to believe something's not smelling right here. I want you guys to get a little creative okay. and come up with a reason to go down. Like a forced outage type thing. Right. Those guys, at the flip of a switch, could just yank the California economy on its leash whenever they wanted to, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it, and they made so much money. The heart of it is that an industry that went for 100 years, from the days of Edison, built the best electrical system in the world, sold the power at reasonable prices to consumers, and was very reliable, was all of a sudden turned into a casino. So, Jeremy, this is a massive conflict of interest when there's so much mm. money available to be made. They, mm. they were tempted by $1,000 a megawatt hour. Mm -hmm. Our private interest can get 14500 a megawatt hour. Mm. Anyway, so mm. what's the perfect solution to this problem mm -hmm. of electricity which addresses all the concerns? The conflicts of interest, reliable supply, and if you're concerned about that, reduces emissions. First of all, we have to renationalise all electricity assets so we don't have this private gaming. And we can go down to the path of nuclear power. Nuclear power can run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and can ramp up and ramp down according to spikes in demand. All right, Jeremy, thanks for that. Like I said, call in and get a copy of the alerts if you want to know more. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week.